Welcome and happy Friday. This is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. And uh, we should say at the start that we're actually recording this not on Friday. We send it out into the world on Friday, but it is Tuesday. It's Tuesday. And I'm here in the podcast studios at Condé Nast with Sebastian Modak, a podcast regular and a producer, and a jet-lagged individual at the moment. <laughs> Indeed. So cut him some slack. And Laura Redman, who has been on in recent months, but hasn't been on from the studio because she's been on maternity leave. So welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. Not jet lag, but also tired. Tired. Newborn. Hashtag newborn. I think baby rivals jet lag <laughs> in terms of fatigue. Yeah. We're in a bad spot when I have to provide all the energy for the podcast, guys. And we're talking about something that's perfect for tired individuals, right? <laughs> we, we are, yeah. So I don't know whether it's a happy Friday or not. But we are going to talk today about the thing everybody's talking about today, but we're going to probably come at it from a different point of view, which is North Korea. And that's because North Korea is all over the news, and we'll talk about that. You already know it, those of you out there in podcast land. But also uh, because by the time you hear this, you actually won't be able to go to North Korea. And this is kind of an unusual thing, not an everyday thing to happen and so we figured we'd talk about that a little bit and maybe get into the why of it and maybe some of the questions that it raises and some of the things to think about as this saga continues. So this week and for the last few weeks, North Korea has been in the news because tensions have been high. Tensions have been high for obviously decades. And I don't know how far back into that we really want to go, but certainly recently it's been focused on two things. One was the capture and internment and eventual death of an American citizen who was traveling in North Korea. So we can give more detail on that. But then also, of course, uh, as everybody knows, there's been a lot of nuclear testing um, and missile testing on the part of North Korea, which affects other places like Tokyo, all of Japan and South Korea, and in recent months, at least prospectively, the United States. So that's why North Korea is in the news. What is it that has happened in terms of U.S. travel to North Korea? Well, let's start with the fact that, Seb, weren't you in Japan when the missile flew over Japan? Yeah, we can start with that. Okay, so let's start with that. So let's break it down. Um, what? What? <laughs> so I was, it was my second day in Japan, I think. I was in Tokyo staying at a friend's place. And I woke up to the news from my friend who's Japanese in Tokyo that him along with I think pretty much every citizen of Japan had received a text message alert telling them to shelter in place because a North Korean missile had just flown over the island of Hokkaido in northern Japan. Wow. Um, which is significant, not because necessarily because North Korea is testing a missile because they've been doing it a lot recently, but more that it's the first time they've done one over Japanese airspace since 1998, I think. My friend kind of said that to me casually. He's like, oh, this happened. And then we like read the news and we we're like, wow, this is this is kind of well, yeah, crazy. How did, how did Japanese media react? Um, so I didn't understand. I don't understand a lot of Japanese media. <laughs> Please translate. But that's what was interesting because so like he was. You feel like if it was anything other than like waving their hands and freaking the fuck out well, like that was that they're too calm. Well, so that's the thing. So, I mean, part of it is that Japanese citizens have been living with this existential threat for decades. Um, and you know, we, I had this strange moment cause I had woken up early and the test happened at like 6am or something. 
When and do all the dictators get their media training? That's like the perfect time to own the news cycle. For the day. <laughs> and then we like stepped out of the apartment and my girlfriend had this moment where she's like, wait, should we be going out into the world right now? And then I like looked around and everyone was going about their day. People were on their commute to work. It was business as usual. And I think that was a wake up call in terms of as a just a regular citizen, either living in or visiting Japan, going about my day in the U.S., which could also potentially be a target. There is literally nothing I can do to stop this from happening. So I'm not just, you know, I'm not just going to shelter in a basement for the foreseeable future. Well, so I mean, we you, went and we had a great day. And t- there's literally nothing I can do to stop this a missile from, a missile hitting, from hitting me. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's true. <laughs> and is a house going to save me if an atomic bomb drops right, on Tokyo? The sheltering in place like, is not necessarily a solution, so why bother yeah. sheltering in place? I think that's how places like Guam have been responding as well. You know, we've some readers have asked if we're going to do anything on mm-hmm. travel to Guam, which has been, you know, in the headlines as being under threat as well. And it's, you know, a through line we've had on many podcasts is that if you can't control it, don't let it stop you from moving. Yeah. Right? Although... Okay, North Korea is, that's touchy, right? We were talking before this podcast started, just kind of casually, like, would you go to North Korea if the passport ban wasn't in effect? Well, that's what I, so let's... Circle back? Yeah, let's circle back from the missile, Seb's missile spotting experience to... (laughs) To be clear, I didn't see it. (laughs) (laughs) I had, you didn't have to tell people. Um, A screaming comes across the sky, right? Like, it's... Tweet that reference, um, podcast people. Um, <laughs> what actually happened? Um, what happened from the U.S. State Department? It's actually been at least under development since July, which was when the Trump administration first announced that they were planning to ban travel to the United States. And that was a month after this 22-year-old student, Otto Warmbier. I'm sure you guys, everyone's heard about this story by now, but he traveled to North Korea with a tour group, which was, before this ban, the only real way you could travel to North Korea. We should say, too, um, that it's, it was a British-led, China-based tour group, right? I think that's right, Because yeah. it's not like there are U.S. tour companies leading trips. It's mostly, uh, many of these agencies um, are based out of Beijing or other cities in China, which share, is very, very close right. to entry to North Korea. Right. Because they have to, as I understood it, they have to work with locals as well. So whatever, they can't just be foreigners. They also have to work with North Korean groups, which the Chinese are better positioned than anybody else to do. And those North okay. Korean, we should say, those North Korean tour leaders and stuff are government sanctioned oh, and they're yes. government employees essentially. Yes, yes. So this student, Otter Warmbier, was detained back in January 2016 for stealing a piece of propaganda, propaganda right. from a hotel and sentenced to 15 years in prison. He was released but in a coma and transferred to the United States and he was released after a lot of diplomatic intervention, right? right? It, yeah. it wasn't voluntary. Yes. And the coma it, was suspected botulism? That's what, that, the, that's what, what North said. Korean officials said, so okay. who knows. And then he passed away while still unconscious in the United States. And he is also, according to the U.S. State Department at least, he's one of at least 16 U.S. citizens that have been detained in North Korea in the past decade. So this is not just a new phenomenon. This is not just the first person who's been detained. Let's ban travel. This has been an ongoing thing for at least 10 years. So it was announced in July. It was put into effect September 1st that U.S. citizens, with the exception, the few exceptions of journalists and humanitarian workers, would not be allowed 
to travel to North Korea under any circumstances. And so the U.S. State Department that put that regulation is not the North Korean government. Yes, the North Korean government actually kind of decried the move by the United States. Um, and the argument, as I understood it, aside from you know all of the tensions that have been happening, the argument is basically from the State Department is that they can't guarantee or they don't feel like they can manage the safety of U.S. travelers in North Korea sufficiently to allow them to visit there. Right. Well, the 15, 16 people who have been documented detained are a percentage of the, what, about 1,000 U.S. travelers who go to North Korea every year, and they, in turn, are about 20% of the Western travelers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's about 5,000 Western travelers that go to North Korea each year. And there's a fair number of Brits who go. Um, British media, the British uh, state agencies are also encouraging their citizens not to travel to North Korea right now. Um, there's a, a map in North Korea is on their kind of watch list at the moment. And it should be also noted that like North Korea, but even before this ban, there's obviously long been a U.S. State Department travel warning about going to North Korea that warned of exactly what you said, Brad, that... Quote, North Korean authorities have imposed unduly harsh sentences for actions that would not be considered crimes in the United States and have threatened U.S. citizen detainees with being treated in accordance with wartime law of the DPRK. So, I mean, it's a moment where it's worth remembering that the State Department does many things, and we usually see it. Our media consciousness of the State Department is usually a semi-political thing where we're thinking about negotiation with foreign governments, thinking about policy and those kinds of things. But the State Department also is responsible for negotiating travel policy with foreign governments and, as part of that, negotiating for the safety of U.S. travelers when they're abroad. And I think this is an interesting moral discussion among several that we can have about this, but because it extends outside of the case of North Korea, right? It's like you as a U.S. citizen are traveling. That is what your passport stipulates as you're traveling with the protection of the U.S. State Department. And so in some of these cases, including the student who died this past July, the resources of the U.S. government get brought to bear when something goes wrong like this. Um, And to put it one way, you can't call the U.S. Embassy for help when there's no U.S. Embassy. Right. Which is another one of the factors that goes into all of these positionings that we hear about. You know, closing of embassies, um, consulates versus embassies, those kinds of questions have an impact on travelers in these parts of the world. Well, it's interesting. Is it so dissimilar from travel to Cuba or travel to, you know, China during Mao's reign? You know, there's a lot of places that have been considered off limits to Americans, but North Korea has this special kind of asterisk next to it, I think, and and for a very long time. I mean, for a long time, we also just assumed Dennis Rodman was the only one going, right? (laughs) Right. I mean, we just heard about him like playing hoops with Kim Jong-il or something. And so who was going and why were they going? What's the allure? This is where I think it gets into tricky territory and it kind of depends on where you stand and we can kind of get into that where we each individually stand. But I think if you ask some people, it's a necessary and important kind of route towards cultural diplomacy. Um, You know, people will argue that the propaganda that North Koreans are getting are that Americans are literally evil incarnate. The devil, right? We're made to look like the devil in propaganda propaganda posters and everything. And so for, even if you're not, interacting extensively with average North Koreans because you're in a heavily curated, government-guided tour. Even just your average North Korean citizen seeing that you're 
a normal, empathetic human being who smiles and, you know, maybe does interact in no small and in micro into yeah, no horns is they could good, be under the hat. Is a good development <laughs> for North Koreans who are being kind of living in this hermit kingdom and sheltered from the outside world. And then the opposing argument is that really what it is is kind of a uh, indulging in like people's morbid fascination for a place that is rules with torture and with intimidation. Um, I've you know we were reading some articles earlier that referred to it as quote torture porn, and that all the money you're spending is really valuable hard U.S. dollars that go straight to the North Korean government that don't go to the people, which you could argue is not the case if you're in Cuba and paying in cash and working in kind of the the informal economy there. Same could be said for Iran, but because you're paying a tour company that is in turn paying a government agency that is you know facilitating your tour. The argument is that you're just giving more money to an authoritarian regime that depends on U.S. dollars, the few U.S. dollars it can get. Well, so backing it up just a second to the question that you asked, Laura, which is like, who's going on the trips? Like, why are they going? It's clearly not leisure travel, right? So the structure of the trips, we've kind of talked about this a little bit. You have to book through an agency, whether it has offices in another country, it has to work with local tour operators in North Korea. And all of those people with whom they would work are employees of the government, representatives of the government. They're approved by the government. Your tour itself is guided and minded. The, you can only visit pre-approved locations. The entire time that you're there, you will be accompanied by one or more guides who are representatives of the government, agents of the government, so to speak. They're not necessarily soldiers, although it's a little, un, I, I, I think to some extent everybody does some service. In, but they're in also highly educated and fluent in English and super charismatic, So because right. that's the face of North Korea. They're that doing they want the best PR see. possible. Right, right. Because during the research that we were doing, I don't know what you guys found, but I did find some testimonials or, or you know, writing from people who had been on these trips. And those people are not necessarily unsympathetic just because of those things, right? They're not necessarily evangelizing or propagandizing in a kind of active person-to-person way. The structure of the trip does that kind of for you. It's set up to display the things that the government wants you to see. But as one person that I was reading put it, you know, those people on the train going to work, it's not like it's a Potemkin village. Like, they're really on the train going to work. The people that you encounter in Pyongyang are, you know, going about their business for real. They really are doing that. It's not just a a sort of government staging. But Pyongyang itself is an elite environment. And so there are layers upon layers of curation uh, that the government has done to keep you from being exposed in an unmediated way to any aspect of the culture. The only place that the minders are not there with you is in your hotel room. And the closest way to get that kind of unfiltered interaction, um, they recommended trips that don't involve language necessarily. Um, Joining, uh, there's a tour where you can run the Pyongyang Marathon. You can go skiing, you can go surfing. um, Because, I mean, how many people are speaking English too? And how good is your Korean or whatever inflection of Korean Mm -hmm. is spoken in North Korea right now? But these are, another article called them minders, not necessarily guides, right? So if you are traveling, and ideally, at least when I travel, I want to have as close to an authentic experience as possible. I know there's all kinds of overtones about that. It's hard to parachute in and out of a place and feel like you're getting the authentic experience. But, you know, you want to try to mix and mingle and just be present. And it's very hard to do that there from everything I've read. Um, There are 
it might also be similar to early Cuba trips where you were getting ushered around again by a government handler. And, you know, if you, you weren't, I wasn't allowed to kind of spin off and go do my own thing until, you know, there was like an hour at night when I was allowed to do that. Is that mm. the case also in North Korea? But I mean, I, I think North Korea seems to be, as in so many other ways, a particularly extreme case of that, because to take Cuba as an example, I mean, I know, I know people who visited Cuba during the Periodo Especial, where things were, you know, very kind of locked down. And, you know, I think the difference is the level of fear that those people seem to have, the, the, the minders and guides that you are paired up with. Because in Cuba, even during that period of time when Fidel was still very much in power, and there was a lot of uh, anti- U.S. and anti, you know, external world kind of um, feeling on the part of the government, the people themselves basically would take you where you wanted to go. They would find a version of that, and they were they were themselves not terrified to the point where they would, you know, sort of walk you along prescribed paths. Like they would be with you all the time. They would they would sort of mediate your experience to some degree, but they would also facilitate your experience in a way that you could actually negotiate around. And from what I can gather in North Korea, at least in recent history, no such thing is the case. Like here's your prescribed route. And people are educated through, you know, a, a fairly rigid propaganda campaign that starts from birth and never stops and a lack of exposure to other people and, and genuine fear, genuine fear of actions that the government does take and has taken and, and are extreme. And I don't think that maybe at some point that existed in Cuba, but in recent history, even including like the last 40 years, I don't think it was quite the same yeah. level. The only thing I could think of was the decade when um, in Singapore, the American who was caught keying a car was caned, mm -hmm. and that became a huge thing. Right. You know, like you don't don't go to Singapore; you're going to get caned if you spit on the ground mm -hmm. or if you if you have chewing gum, right? And that in itself is a level of propaganda. I think it's important for people to be sharing the right information, but that I think is the biggest problem: the information coming in and out of North Korea is flawed, always flawed, and well, at least in Western media because our access is limited, right? And then whatever information is being circulated within North Korea, it, like you said, it's propaganda. So how do you confront propaganda? Does tourism help that? Does it help to have more voices in the mix, more people to help uh, the locals see what else is out there in the world? Um, does it help us to know better what's going on in North Korea? Do we really even see what's going on in North Korea if we go? Yeah. Well, but then that's part of it, too, is, you know, some of those same, there's a great article in the Chicago Tribune that talks about, you know, whether American tourists should ever have gone to North Korea, because now they can't, but the stakes are a lot higher in North Korea, too. I mean, you can be a college student who does something that they're going to regret, like steal a North Korean flag because you think it's funny, and they wind up dead, Well, and I mean, versus, and I mean, like, being expelled from a country or something. Like, I mean, I lived in Indonesia for high school, where if you were caught with drugs, you were if you were an expat, you were kicked out of the country and your family had to move and everyone would have to move and you weren't allowed in the country ever again. Those number, are stakes, yeah. but these those aren't stakes that you're going to be sent to a labor camp. Right, and, and I, I think, but even with the, the Singapore caning, I think one of the things that the, the regime in North Korea seems to have at its disposal is a kind of madness, like a, a whimsicality, right? Like, so... According to a lot of what I was able to read, it was true that if you went and you did follow the rules and you did sort of stay on the government-approved path, most people got through fine, right? Like it wasn't like they were necessarily bugging you. But it's also true that 
you know, if you take this particular case, whatever piece of propaganda, in all likelihood, he may not even even known, and I'm sure this was his defense, but like, you know, he picked up a thing that was lying on a table or whatever. And he whatever. was like, cool souvenir. Yeah, and yeah. he's just thinking, this is a normal, if I did this in any other part of the world, there's no way that's any kind of a crime. But it becomes a crime there. It, it was already a crime. Like, who knows? But the point is that level of unpredictability. You know, in Singapore, if you, you know, key a car, that's a crime. Like, you can know that beforehand. It wasn't just a crime for that guy. It wasn't just a crime on that case. We may judge and say, like, the penalty is pretty extreme for keying a car. Well, if it's your car, you, you might want to cane him yourself. You know? <laughs> um, but but in but i think the, the the difference in north korea is just like what constitutes that line is something that the government maintains the prerogative to change whenever they sort of feel like it and a thing that was not a crime or might not have been predictably a crime i think if you key a car you know you're doing a thing wrong but that's that's why i think that the whole stakes argument and the risk of punishment is only like one small part of at least for me the argument against going to North Korea. The much larger part of it is a moral question, and it's what are you actually getting out of going to North Korea? Right. Is it just say. purely voyeuristic and like, you know, because you've seen the Vice documentary on it and you're like, this place is crazy. Let's go check it out. Well, if people hadn't done that, though, we wouldn't know that they take you to the statue and make you bow in front of the statue. Like, how are we going to know? But is that important or is it what we're learning from, like, defectors who have come across and says this is what actually happens to North Koreans? I don't care what they make Americans do in North Korea. To be honest, like, a lot of, like, the fiction that I have read, uh, whether it's The Orphan Master's Son or seen their, um, not fiction, there was a documentary about a, um, a director and a uh, media star like a film star in South Korea that were kidnapped and brought to North Korea to be part of the uh, cinema industry there um, those are very moving stories right but what do I do with that you know like if you go to North Korea should you feel compelled to come back and tell a story is mm. it kind of on you whether I mean we're journalists so our inclination is to tell a story no matter what that's our day job but as a casual traveler I mean, is there a way to do it without feeling voyeuristic? Um, we have a Women Who Travel group, Facebook group, and this came up recently within that group. The community was kind of up in arms because someone posted photos from North Korea and was kind of like, look at my vacation photos from North Korea. And people mm. were like, are you batshit? You know, <laughs> what are you doing there? Why did you go? And I think that's the reaction for a lot of people. We're trying really hard not to be dismissive uh, yeah. of these things but like what were the pictures like were they like selfies in front of the dear leader statue or yeah, like what was it uh, not quite but along you know there's still instagram photos you know instagram photos in north korea is there something inherently kind of queasy like nausea inducing about that i mean again to me it matters a lot what's in the photo i guess is why i asked that question because i guess i'm a believer that humanization is a good thing, particularly in an information deficit. But what if you're not being shown that? Well, but, but again, like you actually do, it's not illegal to just go up to people on the street and talk to them. It's not. And so you're with a guide and are those people going to have an open discussion about politics with you? No, no. they're yeah. certainly not. But they can talk to you about family. They can talk to you about food. They can, and these are parts of people's lives. Like, again, we're assuming that life in this country is defined left, right, and center 
by the regime, and it is to some extent, but people also still get up and go, go to work. They care for their families. They have children. They raise children. They, they you know, cook food, and they do whatever things people do at some level, right? Like, not everybody is a dissident. Not everybody, not everybody in the United States is a dissident. You know what I mean? Like, so to some extent, making Westerners aware that there is, I think it's actually it may be critically important in the context of a potential nuclear war because we can't contemplate a response to North Korea's aggression without considering all of those people who are getting on that subway and going to work but every day. is tourism the solution there, or is it designated representatives who go and can deliver a true message? Like in Seoul, there's... Um I believe it's, okay, so it's the Seoul Biennial of Architecture and Urbanism. And they have an exhibit that shows the inside of a North Korean home. Mm. Four rooms, recreated. And it's, you know, it's simple but kind of elegant. And mm -hmm. you, you learn something from that. And these are uh, people who have been under, I, I, I'm trying to remember whether they were South Koreans going to North Korea or someone else kind of parachuting in. But these artists had an opportunity to see and to show is it a casual tourist whose job it is to do that? Or should we just have diplomats going? Should we have nonprofits, humanitarian workers going, journalists going? That's why this passport is still open to journalists and humanitarian workers. So I, I just don't know that tourism is the solution in a place that's volatile. I mean, I don't think you could. I, I think that there are different kinds of tourism. I don't know that I would. I, I understand the mediated nature of the experience. But I also think, like, the person who signs up for that and again, I'm sure there's great variety in that. But the person who signs up for that is not your ordinary tourist. It's not the same thing as saying, like, I think I'll go bum around Florence for a couple of weeks, you know? Like, you're making a decision to go into a volatile environment. You're making a decision to go into an environment that you know is not likely to offer you a lot in terms of sort of aesthetic comforts or aesthetic, you know, um, rewards of a certain kind that you expect on other kinds of travel. And so you have to have, it seems to me, even if it's naive, you have to have some level of curiosity about what it is that you're about to see. And that curiosity seems to me, you know, again, I'm sure many flavors of it, many varieties of it, but it seems to me like a healthy thing. It seems to me to constitute an act of empathy. And I also do think that regardless of what kind of a doofus you are, as long as you're not walking around, you know, North Korea doing the Dennis Rodman routine and kind of like breaking the furniture and acting like a jerk, you know, if you're just sort of Joe or Nancy, like whatever you too are providing an available model of, of a Westerner that is something that can make an impression in that context. And I do think, you know, yes, it may be to the elites of the culture. And that is, as far as we know, that is the case. But again, the elites of the culture are kind of the ones who, one way or another, are in power, you know? And so those are the people who need to have some sense of exposure to those things. But let's add the layer of nuclear war to this, yeah. right? The nuclear threat. Yeah. Um, I'm not inclined to go somewhere that is considering bombing my country at the moment. At the moment. Um, I don't know about you guys, but it just, it it feels selfish to me right now. The, the people, I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it. The people who went, who like sprinted to get to North Korea before the ban went into place, there was some, a couple hundred people who got there and got out that just seems selfish like what are you doing to support diplomacy in that case it, it also and i'll use this word again it seems it's just i get where you're coming from brad but it also feels like i don't think everyone is that 
enlightened of a traveler. But why are they I going think, to North Korea? Like, how does that turn up? Voyeurism, because it's like you to see what it's fascinating. There's a morbid fascination to seeing a country completely closed off from the rest of the world that's run by a psycho dictator, and you're one of the few people who can come home and brag that like I saw it from the inside. You know, there's a there is a bragging rights kind of dark. But do you think somebody comes? How do you think? Like uh, again, those people come back and they message whatever they message. You know, even if it's you know bragging or whatever. Don't you feel like we're in a moment right now where we may very literally, not we in this room, but we as a country, and we do have to accept some responsibility for what happens because it is still sort of a democracy. Like we have to, we're going to make a decision, quite likely or or at least possibly whether we're going to engage in a nuclear conflict with this country, right? Like, are we going to bomb these people? Which isn't just going to be a conflict between no, no, us no. and them, because it's you got we 10 can, million people in Yeah, Seoul we can talk are, about that, too. I mean, I think that's a worthwhile thing. But my point is just that I think it's really easy, even in the U.S. media, to sort of put Kim Jong-un up as a, a sort of crazy dictator guy. And, you know, this is a... We, we see the pictures of the soldiers marching and and that's very easy to dehumanize right and 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 rightly so right i'm not arguing that that we should not do that but the people who will actually suffer in any kind of conflict are those people who are again on the ground just regular people who are actually victims of this regime and i do feel like there is an argument to be made and i guess i'm making it that people coming back and being able to testify to those people's presence to that, you know, mediated though it may be, there were people getting up and just doing their thing like there are here is a humanizing thing and an empathizing thing. And I think it makes it harder to do the jingoistic kind of like, yeah, bomb those fuckers. You know, I'm sick and tired of that fucking guy's rhetoric. I'm, well, sick I'm definitely and tired not of saying that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely not saying bomb but those we fuckers. Don't blame the North Koreans. You blame yeah. the dictator. Like, I, we. I don't know. When I lived in Singapore, we lived under a so-called benevolent dictator who was in charge of the country for, you know, 50 years, for a long time. And he made, uh, Lee Kuan Yew made that country a powerhouse, right? But there's also no freedom of speech. And, you know, I worked for a media company in a place where there was no freedom of speech. And what good could I do in that year? I mean, I, I basically just became part of the culture and did what I could in small ways. But... At the end of the day, I just, I really don't know that an unfiltered opportunity exists in North Korea. And I think that is what we would need in order to make things better. Look, make things better. Look at me. I sound like I'm colonialist. Well, yeah, also, what do you mean? You make, know, things, make things better only in the sense of what? Of like, or are we worried on behalf of North Koreans? I mean, that's what it feels like we're talking about right now. It feels I, like, Yeah, I think I we're just, worried on behalf of everybody. Well, I think I'm just, that's the thing. I think, I think, I'm trying to make this not sound brutish but if you're doing a cost benefit analysis here of the benefits of the 1000 Americans well intentioned or not who come to North Korea and have some sort of surface level interaction with actual North Koreans versus the tens of thousands of dollars that that money sends to a totalitarian regime that is threatening that could even if nuclear missiles are off the table could decimate Seoul in seconds right across the border 10 million people dead i just think that's not where i want to put my money that's not where i want to spend my money my tourist dollars because i that cash isn't going to the north koreans well it's going to their regime 
Okay. And 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 if you like, want to talk I'll about now, I'll be the extremist. No, but if like, you want to talk about it, is going to nor- the North Koreans because they get free healthcare and they get free education. So all of those people. What is that who, education? Yeah, yeah but resources are limited. I mean, that's the one thing coming out of North Korea that yeah. I feel like we know is that th- there's not enough basic resources for its people. There's a cycle of famine like every five years. We're also talking about North Koreans as citizens have zero exposure to the rest of the world, which is just simply not true. There's a huge black market economy between China and North Korea where DVDs, uh, you know, music, TV shows get shuttled across the border constantly. You've got South Koreans airdropping South Korean news reports in um, that are telling the real... So, like, it's also naive for us to think that they're just 100% sheltered and brainwashed and that they need to see these, you know, a 1,000 Americans who show up every year to have an understanding of the outside world because they're getting it elsewhere as well. There is, like anywhere else in the world, there's a subversive black market at play that's showing these people these images and these cultural ideas as well. So I think if we're, again, the cost-benefit analysis of it, if we're you know, throwing money towards this regime, like, I think that's far more harmful than it is beneficial for a few smiling American faces waving and gesturing at North Korean citizens. Well, I was talking more about the benefits for Americans, not, I wasn't trying to be selfish about that, but uh, then, then, then benefits for the North Koreans, although, you know, I recognize both of those are arguments, but I'm more arguing about humanizing them for us and running a counter-narrative, or at least providing the foundation for a counter-narrative against what we mostly hear about, which is the regime. And the regime is, in many ways, the country, and obviously that's fair to some extent, but it's also not because there are many, many millions of people who cannot do anything about the behavior of that regime. They literally are powerless. They are victims of that regime. And so I'm more arguing that you know, bringing those stories back, bringing those images back, is actually better, I don't mean this like better nurturing for us, but it makes us participate in this drama that we're a global crisis kind of. I just say, I say leave that to the diplomats, the journalists, and like the subversive documentarians who are already doing a much better job. I feel like write about the the journalists write about the conflict. They write about There's plenty of pieces out there that are looking at daily life in North Korea and things like that. Right. And the movies and books I was thinking of are those examples. I mean, put your money where your mouth is right now, Brad. If you, okay, you have a son, you have a wife, you have a house, you have a family. Would you go to North Korea if work allowed it, you know? As a journalist? As a journalist this week. Well, if my answer were no, it wouldn't be for the reasons that you're kind of alluding to. What would it be? It would be because there are so many other places that I'd rather go. It's, it, you know Cop what I mean? Like, it, it, it's not high on my list of places to visit, admittedly, but which is why I'm kind of saying the people who are motivated to do that, I'm less inclined to throw shade at them or at the practice in and of itself, you know, because people like me are not lining up to go to North Korea. It's like 177th on the list or like whatever, you know? If this is a place that's high on your list of places to go and like you want to see what's going on there or at least attempt to, I know you can't really, but you can see something, you can see more than I can see, then I kind of feel like there's something helpful or beneficial in that. Okay, one kind of la- one last question. Do we think the Seoul Olympics in February are going to be affected by this moment? Uh, are peop- should people be worried about going to South Korea because of what's going on in North Korea right now? I think 
based on what I was saying earlier about, you know, a missile flying over me while I was in Japan. I think like Seoul is threatened by this current geopolitical situation. So is Tokyo. So is Guam. So is San Francisco. So is New York. So is London. So is Paris. Because if this happens the way it could happen, it's going to be a global conflagration. It's not going to be a, another Korean war. Um, so I think... Why are you saying that? Because they're a nuclear... Because North Korea has nuclear weapons. Right, but they can't reach New York with the, anything they've shown so far. So they far. They can't reach Paris or... Anything London. they've shown so far. Right. I, I mean, I guess, yeah, which is the whole argument of, like, at what point do you, you know, in two years, they will be able to reach... I just think it has to be treated like it's going to be a global war. It's not going to be isolated to, you know, the Sea of Japan or the Korean Peninsula. And I think... All right, we'll keep going. Where were you headed with that? Okay, so even if you take out New York, San Francisco, whatever, I'm saying that it's kind of the same argument we make about traveling to places that are, that have been repeated victims of terrorism. It's like, you can't let that get in the way of your travel. You can't let that get in the way of your life. There are people living their lives in Seoul, in Tokyo, who live every day under the threat of this. And it's a crapshoot. And you just got to like... Go yeah, it's been existential life. for them for a long time, yeah. regardless of the nuclear. Now it's nuclear, now it's intercontinental ballistic missiles, but for Seoul and Tokyo, it's been, a, it's been existential yeah. for... They've been in a missile crisis for 50 years. You yeah. Know? But do you think it will stop Westerners from going to Seoul to the Olympics? I think People it will. People are not used to that. I think it will. I don't think it should. Right. I mean, we've heard from enough readers who decided not to go to Paris in the last year or two because of the events in Paris and North Korea and South Korea are decidedly farther flung, right? So it takes a lot of effort to make that trip. We'll see, right? I mean, we'll see what effect it has. It's interesting that we have Seoul in February and then I think the Russia World Cup in the summer. And then Tokyo Olympics in 2020. Right. So there's a lot, like, there's tense places that (laughs) loads of people are going to be visiting this year. People can surprise us, too, because, you know, we published a story two weeks ago now that was talking about how if the statistics continue the way they do right now, Paris is going to have a record year in terms of foreign right. tourists. So it's encouraging to it see that. No, Paris gonna, did have a record year, and Paris is still the number one most visited place. They're going to break that record yeah. in 2017. Yeah. yeah, keep living your travel life. because Not in North Korea. Not in North Korea. That's a, that's a different <laughs> question. But you well, have to come can't. up with a list. Like You're going to have to decide where these lines are. And like, Mine's at North Korea. I'll go to Iran before North Korea. I'll go to... Go I don't to know, Libya. Who are, who are our other enemies? Well, I wouldn't go to Libya right now just because I'd fear for my own personal safety. Right. But in terms of places with authoritarian regimes, I think North Korea is kind of where I draw the line. Okay. Yeah, me too. Sorry, North Korea. Well, you don't have a choice. The State Department well, yeah, has no, taken no, no, no. a choice do. away from you. We're journalists. Yeah, we, we, could could, we could go for the right. I mean, admittedly, it's hard enough to get a visa just to go to China. So I don't know what the visa process would be like to go yeah, to North Korea. I think that would be pretty. I think it's going to be a very limited number of people who will be able to make that happen. Actually, I don't know that Condé Nast Traveler would be able to kind of make that happen. Is that where we work? That's <laughs> as of as of this morning. Yes, <laughs> we still are at Condé Nast Traveler. Um, okay. Well, look, I think what I would love to hear is, um, so maybe I'm the only person who's ever going to play devil's advocate on this and like everybody can gang up on me again. It's so much fun. You asked for it. Um, you know? Yeah. Well, um, it would be really boring if we all just said the same That's thing. That's true. Um, but I'd love to know what you think, uh, listeners, I'd love to know, is North Korea a place that you ever have thought of going to? Um, if so, Why? 
how do you feel about this issue of sort of the moral quandary of visiting North Korea or any other place where your dollars might go to supporting um, some kind of abhorrent or vicious regime? There are many of those kinds of places around the world. How do you think about things like the Seoul Olympics or a trip to Tokyo in the next few years? You know, I don't, we would not have asked this question, you know, six or eight months ago. We really wouldn't. Um, And now it's something that I think is at least going to cross people's minds. um, We also have another great podcast episode titled, Should You Ever Boycott Travel? Right. Which touches on a few of these things. The Philippines. Which was recorded in a very different time than we are in now, even though it was like a year ago, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same moral issues, but it was a very different context for that discussion, which is why I think this is obviously something that everybody's going to keep their eyes on, and we will not be able to look away from this for quite some time, it seems, but um, but I'm curious. Hopefully the news doesn't change so much from Tuesday to Friday that (laughs) this podcast becomes obsolete or super relevant. (laughs) Well, I mean, we can safely assume that you still won't be able to travel to North Korea. There just may have been another ICBM test in between now and then. Yeah, entirely possible. Um, And, you know, I'd love to know what people think about how people are feeling about all this and uh, in North Korea and in other places. Um, so tweet at us and let us know. And do subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. Visit us at cntraveler.com. We're also at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube and CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. And our Instagram stories have gotten really good lately. We have um, doing some new things there. I think you should definitely check it out. If you don't follow us, you should. And if you don't look at our stories, you should. And please do tweet at us and send us feedback about this topic, about many others. I will say I almost started referring to Travelog as the first podcast from Condé Nast Traveler because we're definitely over here thinking about some new things and I think I'm going to start saying that just so that eventually y'all got to make one or make, on me, or make me a liar so somebody's going to have to make one but that being said we'd love to know what you guys would like for us to cover here and we'd love to know what you might be interested in hearing from us because we are in the woodshed working on some stuff Laura how can people reach you on the social medias? I will plan your trip if you tweet at me at danin825. God, that is a big promise. Just kidding. And I, uh, I'm on Instagram at Laura underscore Redman. Seb? I'm at Seb Modak, and I know someone out there tweeted at me asking for recommendations in Johannesburg, and I haven't replied in like a week, but it was because I was on vacation, and I promise I'll do it in a single tweet or two. All right. Interesting. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> I'm at Bradrick. Have a great weekend, everyone. Um, and uh, uh, stay away from nuclear war. <laughs> stay <and> safe. Dictatorships. <laughs> like I said, there's literally nothing we can do. <laughs> On that bright note, enjoy your weekend. <laughs>